0: see everybody. Is there anybody here from MCT? All right, just making sure you spread the love, right? Thanks. Like you know we have a, a confirmed case there, right? What? Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. It's just a matter of time. So uh, we won't treat any of you from McTee with kid gloves. We're, we're glad you're here. and we stand in solidarity with you, but when you guys get locked down first and we're all still free, uh, we'll be we'll be praying for you. We'll bring you meals and stuff chuck them over the fence for you. So, we press on in our series entitled Counterculture Kingdom How the Gospel Changes Everything. And we've been learning that in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew wants us to see Jesus as King. He wants his audience to understand that Jesus is the King. He's our rightful King as our Creator. Jesus is our promised rescuing King. There is no rescue uh, apart from Jesus. But though he is our rightful king and our promised rescuing king, Jesus is meek. He's a meek king. He came to serve, though he deserves to be served, he came to serve and to rescue, not to be served. Jesus is the meek king. This morning, what we'll learn is this, Jesus is our righteous king. Jesus is our righteous king. Uh, As Matthew said, um, I'm sorry, as Ben said, uh, the series is rooted in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we encounter the Beatitudes, and that's where, as he said, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount opens up, so the Beatitudes serve as the introduction to a chapters-long Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are something of an inaugural address. It's really the first time that Jesus publicly gets up and speaks for a long period of time. So this is Jesus as king giving his inaugural address. And in the Beatitudes, we see him detail what will be the primary values or the ethics of his kingdom. Every one of them are counter to the culture that we live in. Everything about it is countercultural. So let's review briefly. In in week number one, we saw the first primary value. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not, you know, contrary to our own Western culture that says blessed are the self-made or the self-sufficient. Blessed are the strong and the self-satisfied. Jesus says, no, blessed are those who see their need, confess their need, and satisfy their need in me. They will be, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the second primary value was this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those whose eyes have been opened by the gospel and whose hearts have been softened by the gospel so that they can step back and mourn appropriately the wrong in in me the wrong around me, all the brokenness and rebellion around me, and the wrong and the rebellion shared by me. We're, we're all part of a bigger story. You don't, we don't exist in autonomy. We're parts of families and churches and organizations and societies and cultures. And so there is a, a personal mourning that has to happen for the brokenness in me and for the brokenness around me, but also the brokenness shared by me that I may not even be aware of until God starts to open my eyes. Then the third primary value was this, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And what we saw last week was this, weak and pitiful according to our culture, meekness is wise and powerful according to our king. And here's our primary value, the kingdom ethic for today. Jesus said this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here's our summary sentence for today. This kind of encapsulates every, everything, uh, every place that we'll be going with this idea. Only the pursuit of righteousness will satisfy my soul. Only the pursuit of righteousness will ultimately satisfy my soul. Now, for those of you who like outlines, here, here's how we're going to approach it today. We're going to look at righteousness from three different angles, and here are those angles. The first angle, the first glimpse it will take at righteousness is called imputed righteousness meaning I don't have the righteousness that I need, okay? So imputed righteousness. The second angle, the second approach or perspective we'll take at righteousness is imaged righteousness, meaning I am created to image God's righteousness. That's why I exist. And the third angle we'll take is this, inbreaking righteousness. Jesus, as our King, calls us to give our lives... To participate with him in the inbreaking of righteousness into our broken world. So, imputed righteousness, imaged righteousness, and then inbreaking righteousness. And again, all along the way, our summary sentence only the pursuit of righteousness will satisfy my soul. So, let's ask this question as we begin, since we're gonna be talking about it all morning long. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? Well, here's a very short and concise. Um, simple definition. Righteousness is that which is right or just. That's what righteousness is. That which is right or just. Now, if you were to do a word study in the Bible on righteousness, this, this would be a study that would take you hours, if not days, if not weeks. This word and this theme permeate scripture from start to finish. And what you would see as you begin to unpack this theme of righteousness in the Bible is this. Righteousness is one of God's attributes. And uh, when we say attributes, what we mean is that's part of who he is as a person. It's a character quality of God. And if you studied a little theology and you're you're interested in, in knowing more about God, you know that he has communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, okay? So those incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are his alone, and those are the attributes that make him God. So for example, God is sovereign over all things. He does not share that attribute with anyone. It's his alone. God is omnipotent over all things. He's all-powerful. All the omnis, those are God's alone. He's omnipresent, right? He's, he's, he's all-knowing. Those are God's alone. Those are the incommunicable attributes. Righteousness, however, is a communicable attribute. It's who God is, but it's an attribute that he shares with those of us who have been created in his image. Um, Psalm 11.7 says it this way, For the Lord is righteous. He is righteous. It's at the heart of who he is. So righteousness is inseparable from who God is. In his being, he is righteous. It's not that he just does righteousness, he is righteous. Now because he is righteous, what that means is everything he does is righteous. We see that in Psalm 145, 17, where the psalmist says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. It is impossible for for God to do anything that is not right or is not just. It's an impossibility. He's righteous in all of his ways. John Frame says it this way, God acts according to a perfect internal standard of right and wrong. It's perfect. And Wayne Grudem explains the same thing this way. He says, God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So we see that God is righteousness. God does righteousness. And one more. God loves righteousness. He loves it. He loves righteousness and justice is what Psalm 33, 5 says. So Jesus is not just another king in a long line of imperfect kings. Jesus is the righteous king. He loves righteousness and justice, which tells us implicitly he hates unrighteousness. And God hates injustice wherever and however it is expressed. So much so, we're heading into an election season, so let's say this. Jesus loves righteousness so much, you could say it's his party platform. It is the one message as king, as ruler, as leader, he wants to communicate. If Jesus is trying to attract single-issue voters, this is the issue, righteousness Um, Now, I'm not just making that up to be funny. Like, that's actually what the Bible says. Here's Psalm 89, 14. Look at this. Righteousness and justice are what? His party platform. The foundation of his throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, the psalm writer says. Now... The Lord sits enthroned forever, it goes on. He has established, look at this, He has established His throne for justice. That's why Jesus is ruling. He establishes His reign so that justice will be done. And he judges the world with righteousness, and he judges the peoples with uprightness. Now, Jesus was very clear about this from the get-go. See, we're used to politicians who tell you what their party platform is, and then they get elected, and you're like, wait, I thought, who are you again? Like, what are we doing right now? Can we try again, like tomorrow, not four years from now? But that's not how it works, right? We're, we're used to how politics play out in our broken kingdoms, and I'm not just speaking about our own country. I'm mean, like, this is a global thing. This is our human heart. Jesus is not that way. He announces very clear from the get-go what his reign will be about. In fact, here's Matthew 3.15, which precedes the Sermon on the Mount right here. And this is at his baptism. This is where the first announcement that Jesus is who he is kind of happens. And Jesus announces his intent right now. He's looking at John the Baptist in the eye. Remember, he asked John to baptize him. And John's like, no, I don't think this is the way I should go. I think you should be baptizing me. And Jesus' response to him is this, no, John, let's do it this way right now because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Basically what Jesus was saying is this, as king, I'm going to fulfill all righteousness and it's going to begin right now. Like here's, here's the, here is why I am going to be king. Here's how I will rule. Uh, let's get this thing started. Now again, how did we explain righteousness? Righteousness is that which is right or just. Well, let's ask one more question. What is right and what is just? We know that God's law is built on two commandments, right? What are those two commands? All right, love God. We'll unpack that a little bit. And love your neighbor as yourself. So everything that is right flows from those two commandments. They are the fountainhead of everything that is right and just. Love God. The second fountainhead of righteousness is loving your neighbor as yourself. Everything right and just flows from those two commands. And so the violation of those two commands is the fountainhead of all injustice in our world. You shall love the Lord your God With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice? Both commands are relational. These are relational commands. Everything is lived towards God and toward other people. So, righteousness, let's not just give us some cold, like religious or clinical definition. It's not just that which is right or just. Righteousness is relational righteousness is relational somebody said it this way righteousness is the fulfillment of just expectations in any relationship righteousness is relational what that means is i'm not unrighteous in isolation too many of us have learned this version of christianity that i'm, I'm like this this good righteous person in this bubble and i just like i exist as righteous or unrighteous but what jesus is telling us is this All of my righteousness is is expressed toward God and toward other people, and all of my unrighteousness, any aspect in me that is not right or not just, violates the person of God and violates the existence of other people. None of it happens in isolation. Now, what did Jesus say he would do with all righteousness? he would fulfill it all, right? So what does that mean for us? It means where we fail, Jesus fulfills. That's good news because I fail to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all my strength. It's not just that I fail once in a while every day. It's that I fail every day, all day long, to love God that way. I fail, and I fail, and I fail, And if I say I don't fail, I'm failing because I'm lying and I'm not speaking the truth. I fail to love people. I don't love my neighbors as myself. I love myself a lot. An insurmountable amount. I love myself more than I love, sorry, any of you. Like that's just my heart. So I violate this command all day long. But where we fail... Jesus fulfills. I fail to love God, Jesus loves him perfectly. I fail to love people, Jesus loves perfectly. Jesus fulfills all righteousness, which brings us to our first of three angles on righteousness imputed righteousness. I don't have the righteousness I need. Some of you are like, John, come on, dude. Like, this is July 4th weekend, late night, early morning, imputed. Like, what are we doing right now? Uh, Let's keep this simple. Uh, Imputed is not a word we use a lot, but it really is a simple word. Imputed simply means to receive credit or benefit for something that is not mine. That's what imputed means. Let me give you an example. Last uh, summer, my family and I took a long vacation, kind of a mini sabbatical. And uh, over the course of the summer, I just I had this desire that kept growing and growing. I wanted to go back to Vermont, which th- that's where my roots are. My mom's parents live in Southern Vermont and West Rutland. And I wanted to start my run at their home and run from my mom's parents, my grandparents, up to my grandmother's log cabin in Orange, Vermont, or kind of near Barry. Uh, anyway, about 70 miles northeast from where my grandparents live. And I was gonna spread it out over about three or four days and I was just gonna carry my camel back and just see how it, how it went. There's a picture here. It sounds awful, but it really wasn't. So this is the White River, and the White River kind of runs through the heart of Vermont, and, and that was essentially my course. I bathed in this river several times. It's recessed down off the road in case you're worried. And I drank from this river several times, and I would have eaten from this river several times, but I only had my camel back, so that wasn't, wasn't happening. But 70 miles, you're gonna need some nutrition along the way, right? A little bit. Now, is that nutrition gonna come from within you or without? It's got to be outside of you, right? We don't generate the nutrients that we need to sustain um, ourselves in any kind of thing like that. Let alone a normal day where we're just sitting sedentary. We. We need something that we don't have. And if you try to do something like that and you're not taking in nutrients that are alien alien to you or foreign to you, you will die. You're going to die without the nutrition. So along my run, I needed imputed or alien nutrition. I needed to receive what I didn't have or I would die. It's the same with righteousness. That's all we're learning right now with the word imputed. I don't have the righteousness that I need, and without it, the Bible says, I die. We see that in Romans 3.10. I don't have it. It says, as it is written, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. Now, some of us get a little concerned when we hear that because we're like, I don't understand that because I see people doing good or just or right things all the time and they don't necessarily have righteousness from Jesus. So, like, how do we square that? Well, this idea that we don't have the righteousness that we need does not mean that we're incapable of any good. People do good things all the time. They act justly and mercifully. What that's saying, though, is that all of my good is polluted by my unrighteousness. That's what it's saying. But why? Why is, why is anything that I do actually good that's good? Like, why is it polluted? Well, while I don't have the righteousness that I need, here's what I do have according to the gospel. I have an inherited unrighteousness. We see that in Romans 5.12, where it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So Adam sins. I inherit. Every, every being after Adam inherits this unrighteousness, this broken justice and rightness. And we prove that we have inherited it by our own sin. Like we sin just like our father Adam did. So death spreads to All men because we all sin. So what does that mean for us? That means deep in my soul, my sense of righteousness is broken. Rather than being oriented on God and who he is, now my sense of righteousness is oriented on me and my personal experiences. Rather than having my justice, my sense of justice centered on who God is and how he defines justice, justice now is centered on me and my own experiences in life. It's broken. It's corrupted. It's polluted. And since unrighteousness, my unrighteousness leads to death, what I need is imputed righteousness from Jesus. And what did Jesus announce when he came? What did he say? I am going to fulfill all righteousness. And that's what Romans 5.18 says. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Here's imputation right here. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So how do I gain this imputed righteousness? You can't work for it. And you can't earn it. The gospel says you need to believe that Jesus is your rescuing king. In fact, all through Romans, here's what it says. Faith in Christ's work on your behalf is counted to you as righteousness. That's how you gain the imputed righteousness, by faith alone. Now, remember when we said all righteousness or unrighteousness is relational? Well, it's relational for Jesus too and for the Father. This is deeply personal for our Father and deeply personal for Jesus Peter writes it this way. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or we could say Jesus for John. Jesus, fill in your name. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus gives us this imputed righteousness so that he can bring me a rebel son back home to my father. I was a youth pastor a lot of years ago, and I'm still recovering and seeing counseling for that. Um, This week, I watched a video by Anthony Bradley. It's on my my timeline if you want to see it. I I love it. It's brief. It's like two minutes long. But in it, he's, he's making, I'm not going to try to explain it. At the end of the video, he wraps it up by saying, dads, go get your sons. Dads, go get your sons. Our father sent Jesus to get his sons. Our Father sent Jesus to get His daughters, and Jesus went gladly, and Jesus went joyfully. And the imputed righteousness from Jesus brings us back home to our Father. So only the pursuit of righteousness will satisfy your heart. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger, long for, and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. Because, listen guys, in our rebellion, we hunger and thirst after everyone and everything but God with no true ultimate satisfaction. But when our hearts are awakened to the reality that we need God more than anything else, and in order to be with him, I need the imputed righteousness of Jesus, then and only then will my soul be satisfied. So imputed righteousness by faith in Jesus' work, I have the righteousness that I need. Okay? There's our first angle on righteousness, imputed righteousness. I don't have what I need and I'm going to die, but by faith I receive what I need from Jesus and I live. Second angle is this, imaged righteousness, meaning I am created to image God's righteousness. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, righteousness is a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Okay, Righteousness is a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. What he's saying and what the gospel unpacks is this. We are created for a life in conformity to God's will. We're created to relate to him. We're created to represent Him wherever we live and work for the good of others. Well, how do we do that? Like, how do we represent Him for the good of others? We image His righteousness. We, we receive His imputed righteousness, and then as a manner of life, we image that righteousness wherever we live. But instead, the record of the Bible indicates that we rebel. We run hard and fast from this created purpose. Our sense of righteousness and justice is corrupted. But then Jesus' imputed righteousness brings us back home to the Father and back to this created purpose. And so that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because here are a couple reasons why Jesus would say that we're blessed. First... If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's a sign that you have been rescued, reborn, and recreated. That's what John says in 1 John 2. He says, If you know that He is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why? Because righteousness is so alien to us. It's not within us. So if you see somebody living a pattern of life in conformity to God's will, that's the antithesis to our rebellion. We hated that idea. We ran hard and fast from it, and Jesus restores it in us. So Jesus says you're blessed if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness because that is a sure sign of your rescue and adoption into the family. But there's another reason. This is good news for everybody in the room. If your passions have been reoriented on Jesus, you will be satisfied. That's the promise that Jesus has given to you. Your heart will finally find satisfaction. Like what does Jesus mean when he says that they shall be satisfied? Well, the word he uses is the same word that you'll use the next time you eat your favorite meal and push away from the table, like absolutely tapped out, your hunger satisfied, and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm full. Like if I eat another bite right now, I will burst. Like I had two meals like that yesterday for the fourth. It was fantastic. It's that sense. It's that sense of feeling, I like am so satisfied, I don't actually want another bite. I don't want another drink right now. That's the same word that Jesus is using. But Jesus is not talking about our stomachs. He's talking about our soul. So he's talking about the intense longings of our heart. He's talking about the gnawing aches of unmet desire. Jesus is talking to the person whose soul is starved. He's talking to you this morning. In the Psalms, we read this. This is Psalm 107.9. He satisfies the longing soul, and the, the hungry soul, he fills with good things. Guys, your souls have longings this morning. Your soul is hungry. Listen, here's what the gospel is saying to us. This is important. Behind every dissatisfied soul are displaced desires. Behind the dissatisfaction in your soul this morning is a displaced desire. Every dissatisfaction I have can be traced to a displaced affection. See, what Jesus is saying is when we take our longings to Him or we take our disappointments to Him, He will satisfy our hearts. See, what we do is we trace all of our dissatisfaction or disappointment back to a person or an event. I'm dissatisfied because... This person's name in the blank. I'm dissatisfied because, man, Okinawa, of all the places in the world I could go, Okinawa, right? We place them back to, we trace them back to circumstances. But Jesus looks at us and he says, when you take your longings to me and your disappointments over unmet desires, I will satisfy your heart. Guys, look, to be human is to know intense longing. Some of us think that when you become a Christian, it's like to be a good Christian, the longings need to stop. Like the appetites need to go away. Christians don't desire anything. They're just, they're too good for desire. That's 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 ridiculous. And untrue. To be human and be created in the image of God is to know intense longing. It's to know passionate hunger and thirst and starvings and cravings. Not just physically, but in your soul. We're created. This is is what it means to be created in, in, in the image of God. And to be in rebellion is to have all of those displaced so that I am pursuing ultimate satisfaction in created things or people rather than my creator. So to be a rescued rebel is to be given a new heart, reoriented on Jesus, though not perfectly, because none of us perfectly long for Jesus in a way that we know perfect satisfaction, but to have our hearts reoriented on him so that even in our imperfect pursuit of Jesus and his righteousness, the good news is your heart can now be satisfied no matter your circumstances and no matter the person or people you live with. Guys, that's really good news for us this morning because the culture's only answer for your dissatisfied heart is a change of context, a change of duty assignment, or a change of spouse, or a change of fill in the blank. And Jesus says, no. I am the answer to your heart. And when you pursue me, when you pursue righteousness, you find out very quickly you're not pursuing an inanimate object or a thing. You're pursuing a person. Jesus is righteousness. And when you pursue him, your heart will be satisfied. No matter how hard your life, no matter how how unpleasant your circumstances, no matter how long you live in Okinawa, you're like, what are you saying, John? It's like heaven living here. I know, but I just have to like make the opposite point because some of you this morning are like, man, I can't believe it. Like, here we are. Like, you hear the noise? You see, hear those flesh-eating creatures out in the <laughs> trees? They're just, like, they're just chirping at me, calling me back out of the building. Oh, guys, only in Jesus. Do you know the book of Proverbs loves this subject of a satisfied heart through righteousness? Let me just give you three quick examples. Here's Proverbs 4.18. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So if your path is the path of righteousness, your life is like the sunrise, growing in beauty, growing in light, growing in joy, growing in anticipation. It's beautiful. But if your life is the path of unrighteousness, your daily life is like the sunset, growing slowly and more steadily dark, uncertain, loneliness, It's scary. It's unmet desire going to bed for another night. Proverbs also says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Righteousness is to flourish. So the path of righteousness is flourishing. The path of unrighteousness is to uh, just wilt and fade and die away. In the path of righteousness, Proverbs twelve twenty-eight says, listen, this is as plain as it can get. In the path of righteousness is life. So what does that mean? In the path of unrighteousness is death. So to be on the path of righteousness is to be fully human, to be relating to God, to be representing him, and to be able to say, look, now I am really living. I am fully alive. There's one more reason. Jesus says that we're blessed. It's this, because every day we get to live into the reality that we rejected in our rebellion. Every day is a new mercy for us. See, our Father says to us in Christ, uh, go get him, son. Like, go get him, daughter. Uh, this is who you are now. You are righteous. I have made you righteousness through the imputed righteousness of my Son. So now go live into your identity. I know you failed yesterday, but... Jesus fulfilled your righteousness in your place on your behalf. So my mercy is new towards you again this morning. Don't try to do this on your own. I want you to depend on me. We will do this together. I'm your father and I give you my spirit to help you. That's what he says in Romans 8.13, right? You're familiar with this verse? Guys, this, Romans 8.13 is our father talking to us and just holding our hand and saying, this is how you live as a follower of Jesus. He says, if you live according to the flesh, which means if you live in your own strength or if you follow your displaced desires, right? Your displaced appetite, he, you will die, he says. You will die. You can't live this way. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Guys, some of us are not hungering and thirsting after God and after righteousness because we are not listening to him and putting to death the deeds of the body and so they are choking out our desires for him. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 2:22, son, daughter, I want you to flee youthful passions and I want you to pursue righteousness. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Jesus says, look, I give you my imputed righteousness. I brought you home to the Father. Now I want you to run from anything that suppresses your desire for righteousness. Anything that diminishes your appetite for Jesus and his righteousness, I want you to run from those things. I want you to run And I want you to run hard after those things which fuel your love for God and your love for people. So let's just ask ourselves this morning, are we fleeing from those things on a daily basis? Are we fleeing from those things that suppress our desire for Jesus and his righteousness? And are we running toward those things which fuel our pursuit of Jesus and his righteousness? All right, we need to wrap it up with one more angle. We've seen imputed righteousness. We've seen imaged righteousness. It's what we're created for. And now let's wrap it up with in-breaking righteousness. And that is Jesus calls us to give our lives to in-breaking righteousness. Guys, so much of this has been deeply personal, right? Like individualistic even. Meaning, like I, John Ransom, personally need imputed righteousness. Like you, this morning, you personally need righteousness from Jesus that you don't have. That's the most pressing matter for you right now. Like there, that is the matter of greatest importance for you personally. So it's personal. What else is personal? I personally am created to, um, in his image, and rescued and recreated in his image, and called to flee Um to flee those displaced appetites that I had in my rebellion and to pursue righteousness. I need to walk that out personally for myself and nobody else can do it for me. And you need to walk that out for yourself this morning and nobody else can do that for you. But let's get away from kind of that That feeling of, oh, this is just about me and it's individual. No, we are rescued into a family. Our king rescues us into a family with a shared mission. And together he calls us to give our lives to the inbreaking of his righteousness in this broken world. Guys, righteousness is a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. Not just my own. And what's our reality? Well, here, here's our reality. We see this. This is, this is in Ecclesiastes 3.16. This describes every broken kingdom in this world that anyone has ever lived in. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, can I just say something as an, as an aside? Uh, Some of us and some friends of mine who have been talking over the last several weeks about racial justice and systemic justice, uh, some of us are really, uh, let me not say us because I'm not threatened by that term, but some of my friends have felt uneasy and even really threatened by um, talk of systemic justice. But without getting into, into, into the weeds, can I just suggest to you that's a pretty biblical term. And here's all I mean by that. Like, that's vocabulary just trying to describe the brokenness that exists all over the place, right? Uh, systemic injustice, it's a biblical idea. Like, let's just look at Ecclesiastes 3.16 one more time. If you want to define systemic justice through the gospel lens, which I would hope that we all do, this is exactly how we would define it. Where there should be justice, there's wickedness. And where there should be righteousness, there is unrighteousness, there is wickedness. Now, it's not that all systems and structures in all places are bad in every possible way. It's that our inherited unrighteousness is so corrupting and so polluting that as soon as you introduce a human being to a good system or a good structure, you introduce unrighteousness. And so if you introduce a whole bunch of human beings into an imperfect system, because no system is perfect, then what do you have? You got a whole bunch of systemic injustice all over the place. So let's not be threatened or uneasy with that term. Maybe we prefer different words, but it's just trying to describe what the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, describes right there. So we live in these broken kingdoms, and Jesus says to us, look, I am the king who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. That's what I do. I work righteousness, and I work justice. So our king is righteous, he does righteousness, and he loves righteousness, right? We establish that. And he rescues us and recreates us so that we can be like him he calls us righteous. He, the, he calls us righteous. He gives us his spirit to empower us to live with a renewed sense of justice and of right and wrong. And he calls us to partner with him in the work of inbreaking righteousness in our broken kingdoms. He works for this, and we work for him in this. And you're like, John, yeah, I still don't know about that. Like I still feel like Jesus calls us to be separate from and the, the church, like, we're just here. Really, John, like, the church, we've been rescued and adopted, and the world's just broken, and it won't be fixed until Jesus gets back. So we stay close together for safety. We find what we need for Jesus. We're just pilgrims here, after all. Like, we don't sink roots. This isn't our home. We just bide our time and wait till Jesus gets back, and then he will fix all the broken things. For those of us who are tempted to feel that way, and that's basically how I grew up, let me just give you this this verse right here and consider this. This is Jeremiah 29, 7. And this is God speaking to his people who are a displaced people, right? Pilgrims, just like we are. And he says this. Um, I don't know. Is that the right? Did I give you the wrong one, guys? Let me read it for you out loud. The father says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So if Jesus is our righteous king and he has restored righteousness in us and he's working for this in-breaking righteousness in our broken world, what's our part in that? Well, here it is. Let's not overcomplicate it. Here it's this simple. Seek the welfare of the city where he has sent us into exile. So, congratulations. You've been exiled to Okinawa. There are worse places to be exiled. And so what do we do here? We seek the welfare of the city of the people here and we pray to the Lord on its behalf. Well, how do we do that as a church? We do that in part through GTO, Gospel to Okinawa, which is our initiative to plant churches here in Okinawa. We do that by organizing or gathering as missional communities where we live together as a family on mission for the good of people who are not yet adopted in. But let's make this personal. How do we do this personally? Let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. What is one specific way that I can seek the welfare of people in my community this week? That's how we practically live out righteousness. We begin our day tomorrow asking this question, what is one specific way I can seek the welfare of people in my community today? We could ask this question, who in my community is experiencing injustice? Who is oppressed and how can I work for their good? We're all going to answer that question differently, right? Sometimes the unhealthy pressure of social media makes us feel like we need to answer that question all the same way. And if I don't post on, any, on a certain given topic, then that's communicating that I don't care or I have to post so that I do care about topic X, right? You know, the beauty of God's providence, God's providence really determines the way that we each answer this question because we're gonna answer differently based upon the passions that God has given us. We're gonna answer differently based upon the experiences that we have had in the past. Some of you care deeply about human trafficking, Some of you know very little about human trafficking, but you care deeply about racial injustice. Some of you are not familiar with human trafficking and you just grew up in a context where racial justice was just not part of the conversation and it's not familiar to you, but you care a whole lot about the... about seeing abortion uh, become illegal in uh, more and more places, see laws on the books that would protect the unborn and, and, and right to life, right? Like, there, there are different answers that every one of us would give to these things based upon our experiences and our passions. And God is providential over that. He will shape those passions in our pursuits for righteousness and justice in our lives. And as we pursue him, he will make them clear to us. So let me just wrap it with this. What if I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? Actually, let's just take the question mark off that. Can we just have a moment of honesty and say, I don't really hunger and thirst after righteousness, John? Let me just say that to you from my heart. I hunger and thirst after a lot of things and people. I really don't honestly hunger and thirst after righteousness the way that Jesus has created me to or calls me to. So what do we do then with that reality? Well, let's keep it anchored right in the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. So let's be meek. Like, let's just be humble together as a family and confess to to our Father and confess to a family member, Dad, I don't hunger and thirst after you the way that I should. I just don't. So let's not pretend. Let's not kind of look around the room and be like, all right, glad we had a, a sermon about hungering and thirsting and walk out without conversation or just assuming that we all do because we don't. So let's confess. And then Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. Guys, we need to mourn this very real brokenness in us that we do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's mournful. It's what we're created for. And yet every day goes by and we don't mourn after a God who deserves us to be hungering and thirsting for Him. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness in us. We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness around us. And Guys, for all the social media noise that we make, do we really hunger and thirst for righteousness for those who experience injustice and oppression? Guys, we have a lot to mourn. But then our Father says to us too, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be needy. So let's be humble. Let's be mournful. And let's just show up to our dad and say, Dad, I don't hunger after your righteousness the way that I'm supposed to. I don't thirst, and I can't even generate that desire for myself. Like, that's how broken I am in my inherited sin. Would you please give me renewed desire? Would you please stir up in me a longing for your, your righteousness? Give me the hunger. Give me the thirst, because that's our only hope, family. Uh, now, instead of, instead of me praying, John Simberger is going to come forward at this time and uh, lead us in a, in a prayer as a family, just confessing, um, just confessing this shortcoming in, in our hearts individually and collectively. And John's going to help us posture ourselves before our Father in meekness and humility, confessing our need together and asking the Father to work through the Spirit for His fame for our good and for the good of those not yet adopted into our our family.